One of the moments that um, is most memorable for us in our sabbatical was going to a conference. There were several hundred other followers of Jesus Christ, and we had the privilege um, of, of being in the midst of a, of a couple of days of, of worship and, and enjoying fellowship. And um, one of the evening sessions, uh, we had a, a time of worship, and then a lady stood up to speak. And she gave this very insightful and, and humorous talk. And uh, then at the end of that, she invited another woman up who came up. And we just stood together and invited the Holy Spirit to come and to have His way in our lives, to fill us to overflowing, uh, to strengthen us, to empower us, to make us more like Jesus. And um, as, we, as we stood quietly and asked for more and more of God, there was just a growing sense of the presence of God in the room. And uh, some people stood with, uh, like myself, was just standing, praying quietly to God with my eyes closed. Other people were <coughs> shouting out to God and singing praise. Um, others were actually, um, you know, physically moved by the, Holy, by the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And uh, the person beside me was, was sort of bent double and, and was basically having a profound experience of the presence of God in their lives. And... Uh, the, per, the woman at the front said, I just encourage you that um, wherever you see God moving most powerfully in the room, uh, put your hand in that person and pray God's blessing on them, and you in turn will be blessed. And so that's what I did. And as I did that, the, the sense of God's power and joy and freedom just, just increased and increased. It was like you could cut the sense of the presence of God with a knife in the room. And... Um, as I stood and prayed with my eyes closed, I became aware of the fact that one of the prayer ministry team, a, a man who I know, came up and started to pray for me. I only knew him by his voice because my eyes were closed. And uh, he, he began to pray for me. And as he did, this is always a danger sitting near the front, um, lots of other people gathered around and began to pray for me as well. And a woman who I didn't know from behind me came up and put her hand on my shoulder. I was aware of the fact that lots of people standing around me praying for me. And... Um, I hadn't even moved out of my seat. And um, the woman behind me began to pray and prophesy, declare what God was doing in my life. Because that's what prophecy is about. It's, it's hearing from God and declaring what God's doing. And um, she began to declare over my life the very thing that I'd been praying about moments before quietly. It's totally unknown to me. And uh, I, I was praying a sort of simple prayer to do with healing. And what she was declaring was that God was going to do something which was far beyond healing. It was going to go to a whole, a whole new level. And uh, I, I, was, I was just really, really encouraged. Um, in the words of some of uh, the, the people who are younger than me over the last couple of months, I was pumped. And as I reflected on that time together in that conference, uh, I was reminded of, of, the, of the really important core value we have as a church, that we really value being equipped by the Holy Spirit and the Holy, gifts of the Holy Spirit to bless and to serve people around us. Because that, that was effectively what was happening. Uh, there were the leaders who had, had the vision for the conference. They were the, a, a very important administration team who had done the the really hard work of organizing the thing and bringing speakers in. 
Uh, there were people who had given very generously to the fact the building was there, the chairs were paid for, uh, the AV was all there. People had given very generously to make that happen. Then there was uh, those who had welcomed us, those who were doing hospitality, those who had prayed for the, for the whole event, uh, those who had done the teaching, those who had uh, prayed, prayed and prophesied over me and other people. There were so many different gifts of the Holy Spirit that were actually being implemented and exercised that were for the building up of God's people. And that's one of the core values for us as a church. It's a core value for the Christian church is being empowered to serve each other, to build one another up. It's so vital in our faith to have each other round each other, to actually minister and serve each other and build each other up. And the marker for that for us is baptism. Uh, baptism really has sort of three elements to it. There's, there's washing, uniting, and clothing. And uh, quite often that's, that's symbolized in, in our baptisms here in, in the pool or at the font. Um, and so uh, the, the washing part is the, is the forgiveness. It's, it's accepting forgiveness. It's having our sins and our brokenness washed away. And um, it's not obviously just about the physical water. The physical water is representing the inner, more important spiritual reality, and that is accepting the forgiveness of God and recognizing that He accepts us through Jesus Christ. And then there's the, the uniting part, which is right at the very heart of baptism. It's where we are, it's like that picture of the, the father running out to the prodigal son and just throwing his arms around him. It's, it's reconciliation. It's, it's uniting. It's embrace. It's oneness. And uh, that's really the very heart of it. It's, it's, it's being one with Christ. It's the fact that we are in Christ and then also that Christ is in us, the hope of glory. And the last part's clothing, and that's what Paul refers to in this passage in Galatians 3, about being clothed in Christ. The fact that each of us are clothed with the rightness of Christ, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Um, so often we, we forget about this whole uh, wonder of salvation being about the, the two aspects of, of being cleansed, but also being filled, being clothed with Christ, being, being made right with Christ, being made children of God, adopted by God's grace. And Paul wants to emphasize the fact that in the family of God, we are one family. We often use that terminology here, that we're the family of God. Um, and sometimes that we, we may just let that sort of fly over us and not really think about it, but um, it's really profound as part of the Christian faith that we are one family. The reason why Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians was really to emphasize the fact that we are one family. And so he's, he's saying here, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, and there, uh, nor is there male and female. And the reason why Paul doesn't just say there's neither male nor female, he, he, he changes his pattern and says there is, no, nor is there male and female, is because he's quoting Genesis 1.27, the, the creation narrative where God has made human beings in the image of God. He's made them male and female, and he's declared that all that is a very, very good thing. The context of Paul's writing is that there are people who want everyone, if they want to be a follower of Christ, to become a Jew, uh, both in terms of ethnicity and also in terms of 
the regulations. And uh, even though Paul really values the fact that he is a free, circumcised male Jew, he wants to make it clear you don't have to become like him to become a follower of Jesus. In the Old Testament, there was there's so much teaching about God's will for every human being, whether they're, whether they're Jew or Gentile, whether they're free or slave, whether they're male or female. The Old Testament has wonderful, profound teaching for us about God's will for every single human being, and that the plan of His salvation uh, was being worked out all the way through His relationship with the human race and His relationship with the, with the people of Israel. But in the 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the birth of Jesus, things had changed significantly within Judaism. And so what had happened was that there was uh, a prayer. I've mentioned this sometimes before. There's a prayer that Jewish men would have prayed when they met together in the Jewish synagogue. And the prayer was, I thank my God that I am not a Gentile, I am not a woman, and I am not a slave. And the woman in the congregation would have also prayed a prayer, which is, God, thank you that you have made me according to your will. I think what Paul is saying in this passage of the Galatians is this. We cannot pray that synagogue prayer. Because whether we're slave or free, male or female, whether we're Jew or Gentile, we're now one family in Christ. And the marker for that is baptism. So the thing about circumcision is only half the population can have it. The marker of the Christian church is baptism in water. And what Paul is saying is when we went into the waters of baptism or the water baptism was poured over us, the reality is we are one in Christ. We are one family. There is no division. We're not going to sit Jews and Gentiles, male and female, free and slave. All those religious distinctions are gone. The ground at the foot of the cross is even. Everyone comes to Christ just as they are as a human being to be forgiven and to be set free and to respond to the invitation of Christ. This is radical teaching. But what Paul isn't saying is that in the waters of baptism, our gender is washed away. He isn't saying that maleness and femaleness is now unimportant. Nor was he even saying that our heritage, either as a Gentile or as a Jew, should be forgotten. But when we come into the family of God, there is no religious distinction. That's why I don't think I mentioned these verses last week in talking about rest and Sabbath, is that that, that Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15 about the fact that whether you consider some, some days holier than others or whether every day is the same to you, just respect the position of other people and live your holy days and every day to the glory of God. It's a core message that Paul gives us that we are one family in God and the marker of that which is open to everybody, even if you're a, a Gentile, is baptism in water. And we're all those who belong to Christ, Abraham's seed, he says, and heirs according to the promise. We are children of God. We've been baptized and clothed in Christ. So it's a wonderful uh, celebration of oneness that Paul is putting forward here. 
He's also saying that gender is God's design. And there's a powerful message in the life and ministry of Jesus. And I suppose for us, one of those aspects uh, in our context today is to do with maleness and femaleness. Jesus brought immense liberation for women. The society that we live in today is largely shaped by the life of Jesus Christ. So in, in passages like John chapter 4, we see Jesus cutting across all sorts of social and cultural convention in order to reach lost people. Uh, the woman at the well of Sychar, a wonderful example. Jesus seems to, every single cultural taboo, Jesus seems to cut across every single one. Here's a woman by herself. She's not a Jew. She has a questionable moral background. And Jesus cuts right across them all in order to reach her for God. And then there's Luke chapter 10, the wonderful story, the well-known story of, of, of Mary and Martha. And Jesus comes into the house of Mary, Martha, Lazarus. And in that moment, we know the, the famous part about Martha complaining about the fact that here was Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him. And I think perhaps the thing that might have annoyed Martha most was that Mary was sitting in the male part of the house. You know, we, we see sometimes reflections of this in Northern Ireland. It's nothing compared to what was in Jewish culture. As far as Jewish, Jewish culture is concerned, there was one place for the woman to be, and that was in the back kitchen. Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, technical term in the New Testament for being at the feet of a, a teacher rabbi. There's only one reason why you sat at the feet of a teacher rabbi, and that was to learn how to become a rabbi yourself. The people reading Luke chapter 10 would have known that Mary was acting like someone who wanted to become a rabbi. And Jesus said, Mary has chosen the better part. Leave her alone. And then Paul reinforcing this whole acknowledgement of the fact that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all flesh, men and women. As Peter declares in the day of Pentecost, quoting the prophet Joel, that no matter what our gender, no matter what our age, no matter whether we're slave or free, Gentile or Jew, the Holy Spirit is now being poured out, and it's being poured out on all God's people, all God's children, regardless of those distinctions. And that all can then hear the voice of God and declare who God is and what God is doing. And Paul continues that in his ministry. So, for instance, in Romans chapter 16, at the end of uh, the wonder this wonderful letter to the church in Rome, he's, he's sending greetings to, to men and women in the church, people who are exercising leadership and influence. I'll just read the first seven verses. Interestingly, half of them are men and half of them are women. I commend to your sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Kentray. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help that she may need from you. 
for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, a married couple who were responsible for teaching Apollos, an evangelist in the New Testament, all about the Christian faith. They're my fellow workers in Jesus Christ. They risked their necks for me, Paul says. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus, who's a man, Junia, who's a woman, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles. Paul calls them apostles, a man and a woman, a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says, they were in Christ before I was. The whole sweep of the New Testament is recognizing the fact that men and women, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, now have access to the Father through Jesus Christ, and that we can be in Christ and Christ in us. And I want to say those things because I want to just very briefly look at a couple of passages which seem to say exactly the opposite of what I've just said. And I want to enter into this, although we're looking at it very briefly, we need to enter into it from the, very, from the point of view of the fact that um, although in the Church of Ireland this has been uh, settled decades ago, um, we need to respect the fact that um, Scripture is not a straightforward set of books. It's complex. Paul says this in writing to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 14. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn them on or open them. This is uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 34, 35. Paul writes, Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. It's important to think of what the cultural context is in that moment and in that time. Even in the early church in the Middle East, women and men sat separately. I'm not talking about the synagogue, I'm talking about the church. And so men would have sat probably up closer to where the teacher was, and women would have sat separately. The thing was that men had the privilege of education, women did not. The service tended to be run in classical Arabic or a formal language. The women did not know that language. They could not understand it. So imagine the situation. Imagine the situation now. If I'm speaking and all of the women in the room cannot understand a word I'm saying, and they're all sitting together, no offense, but what might happen? They may begin to talk among themselves. They may even shout out to their husbands, what on earth is going on? Paul's writing because he wants, in 1 Corinthians, particularly around 14, 11 to 14, he wants to say what good orderly worship looks like. Now, we know from 1 Corinthians 11 that Paul permits women to speak in church because he puts down conduct codes for what women should have on their heads when they are praying and prophesying out loud in church. So we know that Paul can't be saying women can never speak at all in church, because three chapters before he said, if a woman stands up to prophesy or pray out loud in church, she must have her head covered. We'll come on to that in a second.
So Paul wants there to be good order in worship. I think one of the things he's saying is that not only should the men who are in the gathering submit to God and the leadership of the church, but the women should also. 1 Corinthians 11, let's look just very briefly. Uh, we won't read the passage, but you're probably aware of it, where Paul says, basically, men should have short hair, women should have long hair. Women should have their heads covered, men should not have their heads covered. Again, it's about cultural context. I think there's two things that Paul is most interested in. The first is this. He wants to have unity. He wants to have orderly worship. And also as well, he wants the reputation of the church to be protected. In the context of that time, the only women who didn't have a head covering were prostitutes. So you can imagine the cultural context. Perhaps having heard the teaching of Paul, where Paul says, there is now no male and female. And perhaps, perhaps understandably, there's always a danger with teaching, um, that some of the women were in the midst of worship, standing up to prophesy and pray, and they were doing so with their hair unfurled and no covering on their hair, which was the cultural tradition, because Paul surely has said, there's no, there's no male and female. And probably to their surprise, a letter arrives from Paul, and Paul is not pleased at all. And I think there's two reasons. One is this, our gender was not washed away at our baptism. See, Paul's not saying there is no male and female. Paul is saying there's no religious distinction between male and female when it comes to coming to Christ. But he wants to say, God made us male and female, and he declared that it was a very, very good thing. So whatever our gender at our conception, we should celebrate that and exercise the gifts of the Holy Spirit as men being men and women being women because there is a difference in who we are and how we operate. But when it comes to coming to Christ and being filled with the Holy Spirit, it doesn't matter a jot if you're Jew or free or woman or whatever. Paul isn't saying that if you're a woman here today with short hair, you're outside the kingdom of God. Or if you're a man here today with long hair, you're outside the kingdom of God. What he wants to do is protect the reputation of the church. He didn't want the people they were trying to reach thinking, every woman in the church is a prostitute. He wants good male and female distinctives of dress and of hair because that's appropriate for that cultural moment. I think it also has something to say to us as well today about keeping distinctives of maleness and femaleness and operating out of those in order to bless other people, because that is one of the ways that God serves and blesses other people through us, by the people, the men and women that he's made us to be. Paul writes to, to Timothy a letter. Timothy's probably in Ephesus. And he says this, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in 
faith, love, and holiness with propriety. That's probably the most difficult set of verses at all. And it looks in first reading to be saying this, women are second-class citizens. They are daughters of Eve, and Eve was the original troublemaker. She was the one who deceived and caused all the problems. The only way for women to be saved is to have a child. We know that that's not what it can mean. That clearly, the main thrust of all Paul's teaching was this. There is only one way to be saved, and that is to declare with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Romans 10, 9, and then you'll be saved. So Paul is not saying there's any other way to be saved, including by giving birth to a child by which you can be saved. The thing we often miss in this passage and in all of these Uh, passages which are talking about order and worship is this, because it doesn't seem particularly radical to us, but in Paul's day, it was a radical thing. Because in all these passages, Paul says that women should be allowed to study and learn. We often miss that because it, it, it seems to us a given. Yes, of course, women should be allowed to study and learn. But what Paul is actually saying is a very radical thing. He's saying women as well as men should study and learn because they as much as men need to be submissive to the Word of God. They need to understand who God is and what their responsibilities are because if they do, then they'll less likely be deceived. Because if someone doesn't know what the Bible says and someone doesn't know about God and what He's done for us in Jesus Christ, then they're much more likely to be deceived. And what Paul is saying in all these passages is, it's good if every single one of us learns. And similar to Jesus did in that male part of the house, Lazarus' house, when Mary came to study and to learn, Jesus says, just let her sit quietly, let her be. This was really, really radical stuff. And you and I, 2,000 years later, have seen the outworking of the radical stance that both Jesus and Paul took. But often we see the things that look shocking in their cultural context, but miss the fact that here, and in Paul recognizing women as leaders as well as men, there's a radical thing happening here. It's interesting that whenever Paul was Saul before he came to Christ, and he went about persecuting the churches, he did something that was unheard of. He threw women into prison as well as men. Why? Because they were just as much of a danger as the men were. Because all of us have been filled with the the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus Christ is working in us to move and to serve And that includes all the various gifts, whether it's pastoring or teaching or prophecy or prayer or intercession or hospitality or whatever it happens to be. It doesn't mean that maleness and femaleness is gone. And this morning, we're not talking about marriage. But in terms of what was happening in Ephesus, that Paul's writing to Timothy, 
It's important to remember this. The biggest landmark building in Ephesus was the temple to Artemis, also the temple of Diana. It was an all-female cult. All the priests were female. The only people who were allowed to do religious rites and religious teaching and have religious responsibility were all women. Imagine if you're Paul writing to young Timothy, one of the leaders of a tiny little Christian new religious movement in Ephesus. And people are thinking, hold on, are we going to end up like the people and the cult of Artemis? Is it going to be the case that actually it's the women who are going to lead and do all the teaching, and it's the men who are going to do all the following? I don't think Paul wants to give the impression when he's writing to Timothy that that's the way that things are going to develop. Here's uh, a translation that Bishop Tom Wright, who's been described as the, the foremost New Testament scholar alive today, says in translating this verse. He's saying this. Paul says, I'm not saying that women should be the ones who teach men or try to dictate to them. Rather, they should be left undisturbed. Every single one of us, men and women, whatever age we are, have the deposit of heaven within us, the Holy Spirit. And He's given us gifts to serve other people. They're not badges. They're not lifelong endowments. They're just ways that God, our Heavenly Father, wants to bless the people around us by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that's for us as baptized people of God who have been marked in the water of baptism and filled with the Holy Spirit. So I want to encourage you today, if you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you to be baptized. Because that is an opportunity that Jesus Christ died to give you. And his command is to be baptized. If you've been baptized perhaps as an infant and have never had the opportunity to declare with your lips publicly that Jesus Christ is your Lord, then that's what confirmation is all about. An opportunity to say, what was declared over me by my parents, I wanted a day say with my lips that Jesus Christ is my Lord. And I want to encourage us all to bless and to serve one another and to ask God for more and more of His Holy Spirit to enable us to do that. It's something that we see happening all the time among us as the family of God. But it was just something I was just wonderfully reminded of. The fact that so often God touches our lives through other people by how they serve us in all sorts of ways.